Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Well, 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 here we are. Episode 3-274 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today, we will chat with Terence Baker about the a new race that he's putting together in Italy called the Nine Castles Marathon and the emerging trend of destination races. In section one, I'll continue my series on sales concepts with a piece about why you need to target your prospecting. And in section two, I'll unpack the details of how to do a step-up run tempo workout. And I'm feeling a bit uninspired this week. I've got a lot of projects hanging over my head and not quite sure what to work on. So I procrastinate. My focus hasn't been that great and I'm procrastinating. This is usually a sign that I'm not in love with what I'm engaged in right now. And also for me, that I need something new. Usually this results in me either doing nothing or walking away from a bunch of half-finished projects to chase the next shiny object. My training has been okay. The hamstring cured itself after a couple of weeks of easy running. I managed to get some decent volume in over the weekend. Not very targeted or specific for my goals, though. I also got one decent tempo step-up run in this week, and it looks like I haven't lost a whole lot of fitness, which makes sense given how much racing I've been doing in the last couple of months. Buddy and I were up in western New York State visiting one of my kids at school last weekend, and we got up early in the hotel to go for a run Saturday morning, and I had no idea where we were, and we had no plan, just like we normally do. I figured we'd just point our toes in one direction and follow the road for 30 minutes out and turn around and come back. And within a half a K of the hotel, we came upon a bridge with a path and a sign that said Erie Canal, and we were delighted and surprised to be able to spend the morning watching the sunrise over the Erie Canal, over the towpath, as we got a great easy run in and explored this historical artifact from the 1800s. There was uh, no one else out there, and the path turned to a dirt after a while, so I was able to let Buddy off leash, and it was one of those rare, perfect mornings that you get by being a runner. And the next day, Sunday, we were back home and went for an early morning easy six-ish miler with my old friends Kevin and Lynn, who were visiting from Australia. And Kevin started the running club and the Groton Road Race way back in the day. So we did some trails, and we were going pretty slow. So I brought Buddy along again. Afterwards, we had some coffee and bagels, and then I went over to volunteer for the Groton Town Forest road races, which were also happening that day, another race my club sponsors. I was already in my running stuff, so I asked the race director if Buddy and I could sneak in the back of the pack and run the race. So we did, and added another 10 easy miles to the weekend out in the woods. And Buddy was pretty tired, so we just took it easy and went his speed. We stopped to let him swim in the river and made sure to stay out of all the other runners' way. And I was surprised the next day 
he wasn't stiff at all. He's 10 now, and I don't want him hurting himself. But he recovered completely and was barking at me to go do some more. But I made him take off till Wednesday. But he's a good old dog. I caught him on Sunday looking at himself in the mirror. And I thought only great apes were supposed to be able to do that. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Understanding how to target your prospects and why you care. I had a request to do some more articles on the sales process after my rant a couple weeks ago. And if you're not interested, just fast forward. But I think you should be interested because these sales skills I'm talking about are really life skills. When you talk about a sales process, the first step is to find some prospects. And prospect is short for prospective customer. And this brings up some interesting questions that you're forced to answer in order to do this prospecting well. And by well, I mean get the highest amount of viable prospective customers for the amount of money and or time you're going to spend looking for them. And unfortunately, much of what the general world knows about prospecting comes from their experience with the big brands and mass marketing. Those big brands have enough capital to use mass marketing techniques to attract prospects like television, radio, print. The problem with that kind of prospecting is that it is very wasteful. They're broadcasting a generic message to everyone and hoping someone in their target demographic picks up on it and is influenced. In real life, that's not what we do. In real life, we don't have millions of dollars for a Super Bowl ad. If we're trying to find donations for our charity or a good company to consider our job application qualifications, in real life, we have to be much more targeted in our prospecting. Trying to attract prospects that don't have the ability to buy or even a need to buy is a waste of your time and money, and it's a waste of their time as well. We have to determine what our target market is. You have to narrow it down so you can focus on the highest probability to find someone to exchange value with. And I don't care what it is you're trying to sell. You need to get as specific as possible. What geography are your potential customers in? If you're a local landscape business, for example, with a physical presence, you can draw a 20-mile circle that will include most of your prospects. Who are you selling to? Describe your perfect customer. Is, is it a female head of household, a homeowner with $100,000 in family income? And this is one of the tricks to identifying your prospects. Give them a name. In my example, maybe the prospect is Marge, and Marge is the head of a household. She has two kids in the local public school system. She owns a house within the 20-mile circle, has a dog, has a job, has a husband who also works. They have a family income of between $100,000 and $250,000 per year. She controls the purse strings. Marge needs her landscaping to be presentable so she doesn't look shabby in the neighborhood. Now you can create marketing pieces, whether ads, calling campaigns, mailings, coupons, white papers, workshops, etc., that will attract Marge. When you engage with prospects, if they aren't Marge, you can qualify them out of your sales process because you're only looking for Marges. Most importantly, you will be forced to craft a message that explains how you add value to Marge 
so that you can have a value exchange, a sale, with her. Another example of why you care. Let's say you find yourself in need of a job. What job? Who are your prospects? You are the product. What value do you bring? Let's walk you through it. Maybe you're willing to drive 20 miles to the office or work remotely. That defines your geography that you're going to look in. You're a vice president. You like working in smaller companies in the 10 to $100 million in revenue range. Preferably startups in your space of domain expertise. Guess what? You can put all those parameters into LinkedIn and search, and it will narrow the companies down to less than 100. And from those, you can do some deeper research and narrow it down to under 50. And then you can prioritize and begin to approach Bob, the CEO of this company, a 50-year-old guy with kids in college and a vacation home, with your value proposal. And I'll guarantee that will be a more effective approach than mailing out a 1,000 resumes to HR departments. Once you have your target prospect defined, you create a value message that will resonate with that prospect. It has to be something powerful that will fill an actual need or pain. In your value exchange with that prospect, you are going to be solving a problem or relieving a pain that they are going to compensate you for. What would your message be to Marge? Maybe that she doesn't have time to be spreading mulch and mowing grass with the husband and the kids in the house. You'll take that burden off her hands and give her a beautifully landscaped yard that will raise her status in the neighborhood and give her more time to spend with her kids. She owes it to those kids. They won't be young forever, you know. And these are the formative years, after all. Now, we could create some great storytelling around that message and get it in front of all the Marges. What would our message for our transitional vice president be? Maybe that, Bob, you're trying to run a growing company, and you don't have the time anymore to manage that big sales team. As a vice president, I've done it before successfully and would provide you with a predictable, repeatable process that would free you to attack other innovative growth imperatives. Now I'm making this stuff up, but you get my point. The profiling of your prospective customer defines the value message that you are going to bring to your market to get prospects into the front end of your sales process, i.e. deals into the sales funnel. This process of targeting is broadly applicable across any area in your life where you're looking to exchange value. Don't waste your time and theirs trying to mass market. Focus your marketing and your message like a laser on the people who will gain value from your offerings. And one of the most common mistakes that people make is trying to sell to everyone. This is a critical mistake that kills companies. It's typically a misguided attempt by some old school manager who believes that if they just call enough people, they will find the prospects. They will say, it's a numbers game. True enough, it's a numbers game, but if you start with the whole world as your target market, it's a numbers game that you will never win. <laughs> the, most success, the most successful people and companies do not wander or let themselves get pulled outside their focus. The hardest thing to do is to tell Jane that you don't think she's a good fit because she's not Marge. But that is also one of the key attributes of success, being able to qualify your suspects 
into real prospects. The only way you can do that is to have gone through the process to define your marges and your bobs and what the clear, concise value is that you can bring to them. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Terrence Baker, this is cool. Where are you sitting right now? Where are you at in the world? I'm sitting in London, just south of the River Thames in my office. I'm a, um, a writer for an American website called Hotel News Now. I cover the hotel industry, and I've been very lucky to have pretty much made my living writing about travel for, so, for 20 years. So do they pay you to travel around and, and comp you to stay in nice hotels and give you... Uh, you know, caviar and uh, race cars. Well, and sort of it has happened. Although, honestly, I tend to um, prefer bed and breakfast and smaller hotels. Um, I, I don't need to be looked after in, in quite such grand manner. But yes, I, I've been very lucky in my career. I, I've been to 83 countries on six continents. Yeah, it's kind of always been my life. And running has been a perfect um, complement to that. You see so much more, as we all know, if you get up early and go for a run. And certainly with your, with your, uh, if you're with a group, like I often am, a press group, other journalists, you tend to, like any group, get shepherded around to places maybe a tourism bureau wants you to see. And uh, running has allowed me to see what I want to see as well. Yeah, exactly. You're spot on because I've, I've traveled my whole career as well. And going to a new city and just getting up at the crack of dawn and, and pointing your feet out, and going, most cities you can explore in an hour. Certainly you, know? you can, yes. Especially European cities, you can do, you know, you can explore the whole city in an hour. Mm -hmm. I'll often wake up at 5.30 on a road, um, you know, have three or four or five hours before the group gets together and um, definitely seen some wonderful things that way. Yeah, you have some epiphanies and uh, and you see some of the parts, like you said, some of the parts of the city which... You know, they may not want you to see, but they're an integral part of that city and that environment, and and they're worthwhile to see. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Right. So it's not we're not saying those are the bad things or the sneaky things. We're just saying those are the those are the complete things. Yes, indeed. And and if you're running at you know anywhere from seven, eight, nine minutes a mile, you can cover quite a lot of cities. You know. Um, right. Exactly. I I also spent. Um, I'm in London now. I actually moved back to London last year. I'm British to begin with, as you can probably hear. But I lived for 20 years in the world's greatest city of New York, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And that's pretty much where my running epiphany began. I mean, I was always running. I was running since I was about eight. My father was an orienteer. He still is at 80 years old. And wow. he did his first London marathon, I believe it was the first year, maybe mid-70s. I had to wait till I was a little older, till I was 18. But um, I pretty much got into it straight away. I did three Londons before I moved to New York. And that's really where I got involved in running because I'm sure every community will say this, but I, I truly believe that New York is the greatest running scene on earth in terms, ah. of, in terms of the uh, number of clubs, the friendly competition. There's always somebody to run with, um, challenging hills in New York City as well as just outside. And, now I'm up to 21 marathons, um, kind of step back a little bit from doing the marathons all the time. But, you know, running's been my life. Yeah, well, we were talking before we, we met met on the, the social media networks. 
you start a new venture here. You're going to, or you have created a, a new marathon. I certainly have. Um, I mean, I think it stems from when you've done 20 plus marathons or maybe fewer plus marathons, you tend to think, well, I'm not going to do my PRs anymore. You know, my, right. my, my times right. are behind me and, and you kind of look for other reasons to run. And it's not my idea originally, but the idea of combining travel with running um, and having a, more of a marathon distance destination run so you can combine wonderful scenery and, and great camaraderie with a challenge still, still a marathon. Um, so that was the kind of idea behind it. My partner, Francesca, she's Italian. Uh, her father grew up in this uh, town, hilltop town called Arcevia in Italy. And we were there on a few f- holidays, a few vacations. Arcevia, years ago, I mean, we're talking in medieval times, was for power in the area when people rarely ever moved much beyond two or three villages away from their own in their whole lifetime. And it ruled nine hilltop villages, very small. And they're today known as the Novi Castelli, or Nine Castles. And not castles as you think of uh, British castles, but they're walled villages. They're all wonderful. And I just had an epiphany sitting on the um, breakfast patio of a, of a little tiny hotel I stayed at. Wouldn't it be wonderful to link up all nine in, in a running weekend? So two of them will be linked in a 10K on a Saturday, and the other seven will be linked in the marathon distance destination run. Right. So to orient people here, what we're talking about is a part of Italy that is um, north of Rome and east of Florence on the other on the other coast, a bit inland. Indeed. It's, uh, it's south of Bologna by Ancona, which is a sizable town and port. It's about two and a half hours from Rome driving about the same distance south of Bologna. I mean, there's flights to Ancona, also Perugia, and, uh, of course, Rome. It's in an area, as I said, that even a lot of Italians tend not to go to too often, but it's absolutely wonderful. At the moment, there is a marathon in Ancona. So when I came on this idea and I reached out to the Italian tourism people and also the mayor of Arcevia and also the regional tourism people, they were very excited at this because it showcased another area of Marche. Right. How far inland is that? It looks to be maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 miles in from the Adriatic? I wouldn't say that. I'd probably say about 25. Okay, so you're pretty close to the Adriatic there. Yeah, I mean, it's 40 Um, 40 minutes drive from Ancona, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's... European countries tend to be smaller, right? <laughs> I know, I know. And I, and I look at that and you say, well, you have a marathon that's pulling in nine towns, right? <laughs> and and when you think of these medieval towns, you know, the closest uh, similar thing I could think of in North America would be like Quebec City, where they have the big wall around the old city. We're talking, right? we're talking a lot, lot smaller. And that I think that's the joy of it because, I mean, the whole village we hope will come out and celebrate this event. So runners will go between starting in Archevia, going to the different villages, and we, we're going to have um, their running number. We're going to have it stamped with the official stamp of each of the um, nine castles and um, maybe even a tot of wine. I mean, I'm encouraging people to walk parts of it because even though most of it's runnable 
there's some tough stretches. Uh, going up yeah. into the walled villages, some are possible, but one or two, uh, you're best off walking, you know, having a look around, poking your nose down little corners, going to the main little tiny piazza, we'll have water there, maybe a little bit of wine, and you'll meet some villagers and have a chat, and then you'll carry on running again. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, if you look at that part of the country, it's a little wrinkly there. Yeah. There's some elevation There's some elevation gain, but that's not why you're there, right? No, indeed. You're, you're there to experience it. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. There's it, it, some tough parts, but it's not crazy. You can tie in all nine of these with uh, 26 miles? You can, seven with a 26, and then there's going to be a 10K on the day before, which is much, much easier because we're starting at height and finishing at the same height. So... Um, there's very little elevation there, so that would be the other two. So it's almost like a uh, a pilgrimage, almost like a Camino. It may well trip. be, yes. And I'm hoping that um, it will grow and grow. I mean, in the first year, I'm just looking for about 75 runners, really. Combination of um, Americans, Europeans, and Italians. We need the local locals, of course, to give it some kind of legitimacy. Um, yeah. But yes, that's the idea. People can find out details at um, wizardsportsevents.com forward slash marathon dot html. Or they can email me at Terence, which is one R and all E's, to Terence underscore Baker at hotmail.com. And I can give them all the details. I think uh, in the area, though, there are some runners. I mean, there are some Italians who are quite keen on uh, distance running, right? Oh, very much so. You probably remember um, Baldini, Steph- Stefano Baldini. He was the great yeah. great runner from recent times. And oh, absolutely. Yeah, won, the, won the Olympics. He certainly did. And um, as you know, um, there's quite a lot of ultras and, and trail runs in Italy. I mean, there is a classic, I think, where they do actually drink wine nearly all nearly every mile. I forget what that one's called. But certainly there's some big ones. And um, I think also they, uh, a lot of people from there do the, um, the increasingly famous Sparta run in Greece. Right, right. And there's a very um, long-standing cycling community and also a football community. Oh, absolutely. So you have, you, have, you have a lot of athletes in the area. Certainly. I mean, uh, Fausto Coppi was a great cyclist, wasn't he? And uh, they still, still have a... Yeah, they, they like going up hills a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> they have them, so they run up them. Yes. So, the, so Terrence, you're, you're a hotel guy. You're a travel guy. We're going off to Archevia. How'd I do? Very well, very well. Very well. Okay, we're going off to Archevia to run this marathon. We don't really care about the marathon piece. We want to hear about the food, the lodging, the sightseeing, the people, you know, What's what's the travel bits that are involved here? Well, mainly the in terms of accommodation, we're looking at what they call agroturismi, or little tiny um, places where you know maybe have ten rooms, fifteen rooms. And it's just wonderful. I mean, I fell in love with this area because I stayed at such places. Um, a few, quite a few, have um, wine as well, which they produce, and also olive oil. I mean, the food's pretty good everywhere you are in Italy. I wouldn't say Marche was one of the famous places like uh, Emilia-Romagna, or, or, but, it, I mean, the food's fantastic. You know, a the population there, you know, it gets busy in the summer. There's a lot of Dutch people own second homes there for some reason. Well, I know why, because it's beautiful, but uh, why, I don't know <laughs> why, why the Dutch especially. But, um, you know, fantastic people, and um you know, they're looking for these um, ways of showcasing their destination. 
you, you think that all of Italy would have kind of jumped onto the uh, tourism bandwagon in, in, in a huge way and, and know what they're doing in terms of marketing. I'm not saying they don't in Marque, but I think they're a little bit behind the others. So it really is an area waiting to be discovered. It sounds like you do day tours uh, to some of the other regional uh, big places. Yeah, too. I mean, Gubbio is quite a famous place, which is absolutely beautiful in the area. Spello, a little bit north in T- Tuscany, Perugia. Um, but there's all manner of smaller little places uh, in Marque itself, um, which you know, just gorgeous. I mean, they just, I mean, they're all the same. I mean, all these towns were, were built in the Middle Ages, and therefore, at the time, of course. Uh, security was the number one priority, so they tended to be on top of hills. So you just have mm-hmm. these wonderful places now with these you know, beautiful little piazzas in the middle of a town and, you know, sort of gothic, not the gothic, you know, the kind of Italian-type churches, and it's just a fantastic place. It really is. So you're shooting for the beginning of April for this. Yeah. What's, the, uh, what's the weather like there in the beginning of April? April 6th, um, it, it should be cooler. I mean, it's um, you don't want to do something like this in, in August. You don't really want to do it in July or June. So August is, uh, sorry, April's a, a perfect time. There's also a marathon on the same day in Italy, but in Milan, which is way to the north. Um, I'm, right. I'm really looking for a different crowd, of course. So, um, no, I think April's probably a good time. There's a lot of these, almost like my age, like almost retired type people who are runners. They have time and they have money and they go off and do these marathons in wine country. You're probably going to pull that sort of crowd. That's probably that's my thinking too. I mean, and you know, I'm in my late 40s now, and um, you know, I my mind's starting to move in this direction, obviously. And I, 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 you know, as you know, most marathon, most people don't become marathon runners really until they're probably in their 30s because they've obviously got to a stage in their career, you know, got a stage in their relationships, and they're looking for something else after that, right? That's usually the way it works. Right. And then, as you say, it's the next step after this. Um, A step might last 20 years, but then they're looking for something else, and it doesn't matter to them so much that they're doing, you know. PRs anymore. It's more about the experience. So yes, yes. Right, but having a marathon worked into the mix of all the wine drinking and the eating and the and visiting medieval uh, villages, having a marathon mixed in there sort of makes the trip worthy. <laughs> I, I, absolutely, and I, I'm hoping people will leave saying, you know, it's just a fantastic time both in terms of running and in terms of the um, tourism experience. So we're getting people who have already been through their running life you know, they're they're almost on their second life right. in this case, right? It's life 2.0 stuff, <laughs> which is interesting because this is almost like an emerging demographic that never existed before. I think so, and it's probably inevitable after, you know, the great two or three, how many booms have we had in running? Obviously, the Bill Rogers boom and then the um, the later ones. And there's also a great deal, as you know, of, of um, you know, I hate calling them mid-pack runners because they put the same effort in as we all do. But, you know, that kind of um, runner who, you know, slow but steady and they, they want a challenge. And in, in this day and age of social media and, and everyone knowing what everyone else is doing, people seem to want to do these things, either to step away from that or to to be more fully immersed in, in um, kind of sharing experiences. Yeah, I definitely think there's there's a market because I see these folks. I've run a number of marathons this year that were in sort of uh, there were, you know, under a thousand people off in some corner of the of the states, and the the same crowd shows up every time. It's the it's the marathon maniacs. 
and it's the 50 staters, and they're all sort of my age and just relaxed and having a great time, staying in a bed and breakfast. You know, they got their friends and their, their spouses with them. So I think you're on to something. And, and they see the same people every time, and they become friends, right? And I was going to mention the 50 staters because, you know, I have many friends in, in New York and the surrounding areas who, who took it upon themselves to, to do that. It was never, never really my, my goal. And one thing I did do a couple of years ago was to run across and then back across the Grand Canyon. And um, that was my yeah. first kind of major trail run, if you will. I mean, obviously, yeah. no one, you know, park rangers don't encourage that at all. <laughs> we did it in mid-May, and I think we saw another four or five people doing the same thing we were doing. Yeah, that's on my list, the rim-to-rim-to-rim. Oh, that's it, on my it, list. it's amazing. And, and, I mean, started at 3.40 in the morning with headlights and um, headlamps and got down to the artist's cottage. No one lives there anymore, and the sun was coming up. And the great thing about that is you do see the canyon with a light coming down on it in 360 degrees because obviously you're coming back in the afternoon. Just absolutely tremendous. Another hobby of mine is birding. I've always been a bird watcher since I was a young kid. So, you know, travel, running, and birding, I could do all three. Yeah, that sounds good. So do you think there's now... You know, people have done the 50 states and they, you know, they're they're still looking for things. Do you think there's now going to be some sort of, you know, a set of European tours for this same crew of people, you know, or maybe the folks from Europe who who have the same penchant for for adventure, you know, these sort of mini circle tours where you pick up a number of Adriatic countries? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I think the states is a little bit more obvious picking up one from every state. I mean, can you do all 27 European Union countries, perhaps? I'm sure there's marathons in all of them. Yeah. And people, I mean, I love lists. I mean, being a travel guy, I've got lists of, of everything. Airlines I've been on, airports I've been through, hotels I've stayed at. So, yeah, why not marathons in, in, every country, in every country in Europe? Why not? You know what it is? What's happening here is that the, the sense of community and the definition of community within our running world is transcending the events themselves. I would think so, yes. I mean, I, I just think recently I saw, was it on, on Twitter, there's some kind of Runners for Peace organization, and it, I, I haven't really looked into it too much, but sure, I mean, something as simple as running, of course, is uh, just a way of transcending all that ridiculous politics and, and the hatred out there and all, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? Because the events become less of the focus and the community's the focus. The events are just sort of the infrastructure that we hang the community on. Absolutely. And, of course, you've still got to do your training. <laughs> you still got to get around it. It's a marathon, so don't, don't shirk that. But, um, yes, you're right. Sounds very interesting. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to move you towards the exit. Um, you already gave us your, your links, but any other information you want to give folks? Um, there's a um, Facebook page on um, just called New Italian Marathon, all one word. And if you go on there and give me your, your Facebook address, then, then I've got you and I'll, I'll get in touch that way as well. All right. Awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes. Great talking to you. Thanks so time. much, Chris. Great to see right. you. Cheers. Keep, yep. keep running. Cheers. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Anatomy of a step-up run. Breaking it down. There are different flavors of tempo training. This is training that is at or near your race pace effort. 
one of the most effective methodologies for endurance running and racing is a training run where you systematically increase the intensity throughout the workout. One of my bread and butter workouts is a step-up run. I'm going to unpack the step-up run workout for you today. The example I'm going to use is a one-hour step-up run. In a one-hour step-up run, you're going to do 10 minutes at an easy effort, 20 minutes at a medium effort, 20 minutes at a hard effort, and 10 minutes easy as a cool-down. Today I'm going to unpack the detail of this one-hour step-up run. I'm using time as the measure, but you could use distance as well. Use whatever your equivalent round number distance is. For me, the equivalent distance would be 8 miles. In that case, the steps might be a 2-mile warm-up, 2 miles at medium, 3 miles at hard, with a mile warm down. In a marathon training program, I might use these step-up runs up to an hour and a half in duration or 14 to 16 miles. That's a hard workout. The ratios will scale with the distance. The warm-up and the cool-down is not ever going to be more than 2 miles or around 20 minutes. The medium and hard will scale as the time or distance increases. As you progress through your training, you might do one of these a week. Over the course of the campaign, the distance slash time would increase in waves. You might start with a 30 or a 40 minute step up run and then work up from there once you're comfortable with it and the structure and the effort. Now I'll typically do these on a relatively flat out and back course. If you were doing it by distance and you had a loop of the right distance, that would work too. And it's okay to have some rolling hills but you don't want any monsters that will knock you off your pace and effort. Doing these outside on a rolling course in the elements is good because you get to practice pacing in those elements. One of the interesting things about this run is that if you do an out and back, your return pace is going to be faster than your outbound pace because of the way the workout is structured. And unless you calculate the offset, you'll be back early. Now, you can geek out and do it with algebra, but I just estimate for a one-hour step up, out and back, I should think about turning around somewhere around 33 minutes out. It all works out. A minute either way isn't going to kill you. The beauty of this workout is that it not only increases your fitness, both mental and physical, it trains you to do the right things in an actual race. It trains you to pace appropriately in the beginning and then close with confidence. These are great for building race fitness and confidence. You can measure the step up run in three different ways. You, first, you could use perceived effort. Second, you could use pace. Third, you can use heart rate. Any of these will work and you can mix and match depending on what you have available to you and what you're trying to test. Perceived effort is fairly inexact unless you're very experienced. I find that I do the low effort early parts of the workout too hard and then don't have enough at the end if I use perceived effort. Perceived effort as a measure, it's easier for runners with experience. And the advantage is that you don't need anything more than a watch or a marked course. 
Pace is good, especially if you're targeting a specific pace for a race. It will help you with your race pace confidence. The disadvantage of pace is that it's hard to control a specific pace on a rolling course outside in the elements. You have to be okay with how uphills, downhills, and wind affect your pace. It can be disheartening in the middle of a workout to look at your watch and see you're lagging just because it's a windy day or you're not feeling it. I prefer these days to do these workouts using heart rate. Of course, you need a way to measure your heart rate, like a chest strap for your Garmin, which is what I use. You also have to know your heart rate zones. I use a five-zone system. I'm not going to go into how to define heart rates here. I've done that before. You should have a heart rate coach help you set your heart rate zones because the default formulas and settings are almost guaranteed to be wrong, and it's important to have the right effort level in training, especially in these kind of runs. And once you have your heart rate zones set, you can use them in your step-up runs. The initial warm-up is at zone 2 or lower. This is a zone 2 or a 2 effort level on a scale of 1 to 5. This is easier than your typical easy run with your club. I find that it's hard to find the zone 2 effort level in the warm-up, and you really have to slow yourself down. It's like starting a cold engine. It takes a couple of minutes for your machine to warm up, especially in the cold weather. One trick I'll use is to take my chest strap and run it under warm water to get it wet before I put it on. This way the contacts are good and it doesn't slip around as much. Otherwise, you may very well get funky readings until your body heats up, and that can take up to 10 minutes. When we say zone 2, we mean try to keep it in the middle of zone 2. 2.5 would be great. 2.2 is okay. 2.8 is okay. It's better to err on the easy side in your warm-up because you want to have the energy left for the important phase of the workout, the hard effort at the end. And the same is true with the medium effort and the hard effort. Target the middle of the zone. As you get into the hard phase, the zone 4 effort, you can judge how much you have left. The important thing is to budget your effort in a way that you can finish the workout. It's preferable not to have to stop during your hard effort. Warm-up, zone 2, medium, zone 3, hard, zone 4. Cool down, zone 2 again. You'll get a feel for what effort levels are appropriate for you after you do a couple of these. My advice would be to keep it in the low end of the zone until you know you can finish the workout, and then play with letting the effort creep up in subsequent workouts until you find that failure point. It's always better to have it at the end than to waste it in the beginning, just like in a real race. Now, your body is not a digital machine. It won't transition from zone 2 to zone 3 with the flip of a switch. It will take you a few of these workouts to learn how to manage the transitions. Initially, you will be tempted to increase the effort too much when you change zones, and you'll overshoot and have to bring it back down. The best way to manage this is to incrementally increase your cadence a little bit at a time and let the heart rate creep up into the new zone. It's like learning to drive a car. At first you yank the steering wheel back and forth over correcting and then eventually you learn to steer with one finger 
in smooth, easy increments. So try to avoid stopping at the transition points. Strive to make this one continuous workout. Keep the legs and the form consistent as you ratchet up the effort. The other important thing is to practice not changing your form as you go through the zone transitions. You should have the same good form at all paces. Don't start to overstride or break your mechanics in the hard effort. Keep your form upright, your hips forward. Manage your effort by varying the speed of your turnover, not by increasing your stride length and overstriding. And the hills, the hills will be a challenge. It's okay to let your heart rate creep up as you're climbing the rolling hills. Just keep it from blowing up by adjusting your cadence. More importantly, you want to keep in your target zone on the downhills by pulling your elbows back for the counterbalance and increasing your turnover again. I find the downhills harder to pace in zone than the uphills. Now, your body's going to help you with the increased heart rate as you get into the later stages of the workout. As you fatigue, your heart rate naturally creeps up. What you will find with this workout is that the hard phase, the zone four effort, is a challenge. It will take mental and physical strength and stamina to hold that effort with good form for those last 20 minutes in this case. If you start to get in trouble, don't blow up and stop. Incrementally let your cadence drop a little until the episode passes and then incrementally bring it back up until you find a spot that works. Unless you completely blow up, it's better to manage a slower pace or lower effort until you recover. That's why finding the right effort level for the early phases of the workout is so important. If you're too aggressive early, you will blow up before you can finish the hard bit. I know. I've done it many times. It takes time to find that balance. You can always spend your extra energy at the end of the hard step if you have too much left over by throwing in a little 5k pace surge to close the workout. That's a step-up run. You will have noticed by now why these are so effective. They force you to figure out how to mentally manage the discomfort of running at a high effort level in the second half of a workout. They force you to find the balance and trade-off of effort and strength at the end of a workout. And these are the things that you need to perform well in any endurance race. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep well my friends that's it episode 3-274 another week of running I feel okay the hamstring is good the fitness is decent since it is getting cold up here I had to start wearing shoes again instead of sandals and that has caused the plantar fasciitis to complain a little bit. I'm going to have to work in some preventative therapy to strengthen my feet, probably a little barefoot running. All in all, I feel a little fragile. I've been put on weight, too. I blame the Red Sox. I don't really care too much about baseball, but since I've been home over the last couple of weeks, I've been watching the playoff games. And I find there is something about sitting on the couch and watching baseball that makes you want to eat and drink beer. It must be some sort of subliminal advertising, or not-so-subliminal advertising. 
I'm going into a bit of a weird period now with a lot of travel. I'll be out in Denver this weekend for a conference, and we'll be running the Denver Rock and Roll Marathon. I'm not looking to do anything other than just treat it as a long training run. Ha, where have I heard that before? I have the Fort Myers Marathon with Adam, the Zen Runner, on November 10th, and I'm going to be out in Chicago the week before and basically flying back Friday night to turn around and fly back out Saturday morning for the race. And given the travel schedule, it probably won't be prudent to race there, but we'll see. I've heard that before, too. This marathon a month thing is a bit of a grind. (laughs) I'm starting to see stories about next year's Boston Marathon already, and so I'll have to get Dave McGilvery back on to talk about it and see what's going to happen, how they're going to manage all that. should be a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Let me tell you a story from my week. I was out doing an easy trail run with Buddy. There was a couple walking their dog that we passed, and since the trail loops cross in places, I came upon them again, and they were standing at a trail intersection looking at a pile of crushed Bud Light beer cans, and they told me that these cans had appeared overnight. I looked and I counted 11 cans. We wondered where the 12th was. I would have taken them, but I didn't have any way to carry them out. I told them it was just kids and to leave them there and I would come back and carry them out at some point. And about a mile later, in a whole different part of the trail, Buddy and I are running along, crunching through the leaves, and a plastic shopping bag blows across the trail in front of us. There really isn't any trash on these trails, really, so I figured it was karma and I grabbed the bag. And 30 minutes later, as we finished up and looped back by where the cans were, I picked them up and put them in the bag, and brought them home for the recycling. I try to pick up trash, if I can, when I'm out in the trails. During the trail race last week, since I was bringing up the back, Buddy and I, I found a pair of running gloves and a nice dog leash, which was good karma, because I needed a new dog leash. When you're out and about this week, why don't you try to add to the good karma? Smile. Let someone into traffic. Hold the door for someone. Buy a stranger a cup of coffee. Pick up one piece of trash. It's our world. If we all just do simple acts, we can change it. I'll probably go back to an every other week schedule because I'm getting busy again. We'll see if I have time for a race report next week. Until we meet again, be kind. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, 
You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao. I know a way to get you up on